So, you ready, Lee? Okay. So have you ever told somebody you're going to do something, and then you've not done it? I have. Or have you ever said you're going to be someplace at a certain time, people show up, you're not there? I have. This morning I was supposed to be here to play basketball, which we play every Wednesday at 6 a.m., except when I awoke, it was 6.15, and my phone was dead, and I was already late. Disappointing young men and older men alike. Tonight we're going to talk about that a little bit, but let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will open the text. Uh, Lord God, we come to you tonight. You are well aware of the many times that we say we're going to do things and we don't, and yet you keep coming back to offer us grace and mercy. We ask that you would continue to be with us in this journey through the Gospel of Matthew as we engage with your word and your spirit, learning more and more about your son. So be with our time tonight, be with our discussions, help us bridge the gap between what we believe and how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I should have eaten that mint like five minutes earlier. All right, so we are in the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew's Gospel, depending on how you like to say it. Uh, We are in chapter five tonight. Uh, As we mentioned, uh, we had been going a chapter a a night, and now we're slowing down for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So last week we started the Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we're going to go 520 through 38. Um, So we're taking about five weeks to walk through the Sermon on the Mount together. Somebody once did that. Um, a few years ago, that was me. Um, so I thought it would be apropos to do it again in five weeks, acknowledging we could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks uh, walking through this. I will say up front, um, like I said, I did this a few years ago on, uh, during the summer. I intentionally did not go back and pull up my notes, nor did I watch the video, which you can watch the video because it's still available on YouTube. So if I say something that I said then, it's not intentional. Or if I contradict something I said then, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it'll be a retraction. We'll have an uh, edit segment for next uh, time. Uh, I, yeah, I just I wanted to come, with this, come to this text uh, fresh and not try and retread on old stuff. Um, so I'd be curious to see what what has changed. Certainly, I have a lot more gray hair. (laughs) So we're starting in 21. Jesus is speaking here. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly 
with your accuser while you're going with them to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the one thing I want to start us off with is by reflecting on uh, where we have been. So we talked about this early on. We were going to do this like recap sort of to keep us caught up. So Jesus starts his ministry, right? After his baptism, he goes out, he's tested, he calls the disciples uh, into, to follow him. So right after that, we get this picture of they've been called into something and now they go uh, onto this mountain to learn what they have been called into. So that's the framework that they find themselves in. What's interesting is when we look at Jesus functioning as the perfect Israel, we can remember back to the Israelites before they go into the promised land. Moses goes up onto a mountain. He spends these 40 days and he receives instructions about how the Israelites are to live. So see what Matthew is giving us here in this picture of Moses and the Israelites go through this process. Jesus comes and now his disciples are going through this process of learning uh, what it's going to look like to follow after him. Likewise, what I want us to be aware of is if you remember last week, it concludes with, or the previous section in the Sermon on the Mount, is this conversation about how the law is not going to be abolished, but is going to be fulfilled. So Jesus mentions the law and the fulfillment of the law, or the true execution of the law, and then he goes into giving us what? Parts of the law. Jesus, in these phrases, is not pulling up something new, he's actually saying, you've heard it said before. And so what he is starting with is this commandment. So he's starting with something from the mountaintop experience that Moses has, instructions on how the Israelites are supposed to live as they go into the promised land. 
And he's taking it, and he's not ruining it. He's not abolishing it. He's actually intensifying it. Because oftentimes we can look at this and say, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, almost in the grammatical negation of the previous. So we can think of, he's taking an old thesis, the Ten Commandments, and he's giving us the antithesis. But that's not what he's doing, because antithesis would be the opposite of the thesis. He's taking the thesis, as one commentator points out, and making it even more intense or more rigid or strict. So he uses this phrasing, you have heard uh, that it was said to those of old, hearkening back to uh, the hearing of the word. So we often forget the word would have been spoken and the first century or even previous before that, folks pre-Jesus, would not have read anything. They would have listened to uh, the narration of Scripture. Likewise, when we go to read Scripture, what do we do? Who is the Bible written to when we sit at home and read the Bible? To me. It's written to me. God has given me his word to me for me to read, for me to ingest, for me to digest, and for me to live out. Me, 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 me. Except that's not true. (laughs) Somebody just live tweeted, Pastor Eric said the Bible's not for us. (laughs) It's not what I said. When we look at Scripture, especially when we look at the words of Jesus, oftentimes we say, Jesus is talking to me, and he's telling me what to do or what not to do. And we really miss the point. We really do a disservice to God's communicative act that is Scripture and the intent behind what is happening. God did not give us his word for individualistic pursuit of a holy life. So when we talk about these things of Jesus, we're not sitting at home trying to figure out how do I better live out my life as an individual. Okay? For many of us, this is, this is uncomfortable because for while we've lived our lives forever, that's what we think. Jesus is telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Like it's me and God, this vertical relationship. My contention is what we're entering into in the Sermon on the Mount is exactly what we get in the Ten Commandments and in the law. Because what were the Ten Commandments meant to do? Get the people into heaven. Here's your, here's your we'll, go, we'll go multiple choice. <laughs> what was the law meant to do? A, get people into heaven. B, get people into heaven. 
see, help the nation of Israel live out a communal existence in the promised land. D, none of the above. And the answer is C. It's always C. The answer is always C in multiple choice. The Ten Commandments were not about individual holiness. They were about how the community was going to live with their God in community. Why are we not supposed to kill each other? Because <laughs> that isn't how brothers and sisters act. Why are we not supposed to steal from each other? Because it'll cause animosity and division. Why are we not supposed to do these things? Because it's about how the people of God are to relate to one another. Okay? So we have that in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he segues into talking about the law. Are we seeing this bridge that we're building? Okay? From, from the First Testament to the Second Testament. And then he talks about anger. So is God condemning anger because he doesn't want me as an individual to be in a place of hostility? Because it, it doesn't look good on me. It causes me not to sleep well at night. No. What God doesn't want to have happen is for there to be fractured relationships between brothers and sisters within the community and kingdom of God. But how often is it the case that we take this and we think of it in terms of Jesus is trying to get me to behave a particular way so that I can be more holy in relation to him on a vertical plane when in actuality these things that Jesus is instructing are on the horizontal plane which exists between relationships. Why does he say this? He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell, the hell of fire. Because to have these feelings towards fellow brothers and sisters in Christ creates the poison of fractured relationships, which when it's given birth, creates an infection in the body. See what he's doing here? So the anger isn't the issue. The anger that is cultivated and stored within us, that's watered and cultivated so that we produce animosity between us and another brother or sister in Christ, that is the problem. So how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? Because I was, so this conference that I went to last year is happening right now. I didn't go to it because of Maddie turned 18 yesterday. And I was listening to this panel discussion yesterday, and one of the things they were talking about is it's fascinating, talking about reconstructing evangelicalism. 
the distance between what we theologically agree with and the way we actually live oftentimes is a very large chasm. Because we can assent to theological beliefs and then when it comes to practicing them or living them out, there creates this huge chasm. So we have a choice to make. Either we reject the belief, I don't believe this to be true, or we start living differently. So in this instance, Jesus is instructing his disciples, because that's what it's like, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to slap on Jesus' disciple, this is what your life should look like. So if your life doesn't look like this, then maybe you should hand in your Jesus badge. So notice, he doesn't say, do not become angry. Because remember last year when we were talking to Ephesians, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. So the sin isn't the anger. The sin is what do we do with the anger? How do we handle it when somebody does something to me that harms me? Well, most of the time, what do we do? We grab it, we put it in our pocket, and we let it ferment for a little while. And it's like the great grumpy old men. Our neighbor does something to us. So what do we do? We take something and we just stick it under his seat. And we just kind of let it fester there for a while to the point where it's unbearable. Or we take it and we go to a whole other group of friends and we try to get teammates. You wouldn't believe. You would not believe what this person did to me. So you all should be angry with me. Now we can all be angry together at that person. This will be fun. And we love to do it. It's this group think mentality. You ever notice it? Somebody gets upset. They come to you. They're fired up. And all of a sudden you're like, by golly, I'm fired up too. I didn't even know why I'm fired up. Let's go get them. And then what happens? Division Factions, fractions, the body starts to break apart. And so Jesus says, yeah, yeah, not killing people? <laughs> that's, that's like basic stuff, easy stuff. If you want to follow me, the standard is even higher. And it's when you have a problem with your brother or sister in Christ, you go and you deal with it. but you don't know what they did. There's no qualifiers. Jesus says, it's okay to do this if they've done, like that's in the footnotes. That's in the original Greek that you can't read. No, no. Jesus is calling all of those who will follow after him to this higher standard because he knows 
It's easy to not kill somebody. I'm pretty sure we'd all agree with that. (laughs) Even the married people (laughs) would all agree with that. Like, not killing someone, not that high of a bar. Like, I'm okay with that. Because he, sa- he, gives it, he gives it these classifications, and then he makes it even harder. Like, if we actually read the Sermon on the Mount, and I know I said this, I've said this before, if we actually read the Sermon on the Mount before we went and decided if we were going to follow Jesus, we'd be like, I don't know. Because <laughs> it's not just having this, this burning anger in us. It goes even further. You can't call people names. <laughs> but what if they deserve it? The other week, I was with my friends, and we were down in Missouri, and, and we were out surfing, and, and he has this megaphone on his boat. And I'm like, well, what is that for? And he's like, it's for all the people, he used a different word, who choose to come right into our wake as we're trying to surf so that I can tell them the law and instruct them in all Christian love where they should be. And where they shouldn't be. So sure enough, one of our friends is surfing, and here comes a boat. Out comes the bullhorn. And immediately I was like, yeah! Jesus loves you! Just not here! That was my paraphrase, what what we said. We can't even refer to people in derogatory terms, insults. This is my paraphrase of Jesus' words. Whoever says that person is an idiot is going to hell. Wait, what? Like, I didn't sign up for this Jesus, this Jesus. I signed up for, like, the nice Jesus that just, like, yeah, everyone, come on in. We're all going to go to heaven together when we die, and, like, it's all good. Now, what we wrestle with in the Sermon on the Mount is, and in all of Scripture, is Jesus using hyperbole, as a way to get our attention or to get the listener's attention? Or does he actually mean it? And then we go and say, what if this was the standard? Because he goes right at the heart of Judaism. And he says, if you're on your way to offer to God, which to the Jew is like the top, like we, most people here think Sunday morning's a big deal. Like going and offering your, your gift at the altar is an even bigger deal. So like if you're on your way 
and you realize that, that there's a faction or a fracture in a relationship with a brother and sister in Christ, that's no longer the priority. Think about how revolutionary that was for a Jew. You just told me that it's more important that I am in a right relationship with my brother or sister in Christ than it is for me to come and to bring my gift to worship. Think about that. Think about the gravity of how we would function if we were on our way to this building or to a church wherever we go and we remembered that, that we had a fractured relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe that fracture is with the person that's sitting in the passenger seat. Well, we, we got to go in. <laughs> Do we? Well, people are going to see us sitting out here and they're going to wonder why we're not going into the building to put on a fake smile and sing some songs and pretend like we are good. And yet the words of Jesus says, if you are on your way to worship and you have a fracture in a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, nothing else is of that importance. Say what? First, be reconciled. And, and I know, I know this very well. <laughs> I spent six weeks teaching on the importance of forgiveness. So, I know this very well. Reconciliation is not always an option. Because we, we've talked about this before, and we, it's worse than hiccups. It's the yabuts. And we develop them as we're sitting and we're listening to scripture or listening to a text that we don't want to agree with. And it's like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I, I get that. Jesus says that we are to go and to seek reconciliation. There are certain people that do not want to reconcile with us. That's no longer on us, that's on them. The goal and the hope is that there be unity within the body of Christ and to live as a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a reconciler. It's like talking about being a peacemaker and the Beatitudes. Talking about those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and being merciful. This is what it looks like. It's to be a reconciler. Because to not be a reconciler is to not be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I know, we want to come up with every possible excuse. Jesus just doesn't give us that option. And then he says, even, even as you're heading to, to court, the last thing you want to do, reconcile, find a way to get over this. And then he goes on to the next commandment, and he talks about this idea of lust. 
And how often is it the case that we think about lust as an individualistic problem? The problem with lust, it's not about me. It's about how I see other human beings. Because lust is looking at someone else as a possession to be taken in. And for a first century listener, women were not human beings, they were property. So when he uses this example of men looking at other women in lustful manner, it's to take them as his own possession. Lust is the objectification of the female body in this instance. It's not seeing the full humanity in another person, but seeing them as an object for my personal gratification. See what he's saying there? He's saying that when we have a fracture in a relationship, meaning I see a woman as not a woman, but as an object, then I treat her inappropriately. And that is the problem. But so often we think of it in terms of, well, this is just about me. Yes. So what, what was just said is Jimmy Carter in a 1976 article, interview, mentioned that he may have lusted after another female. The interesting thing is, again, for many of us, we look at the bar of thou shalt not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said. And Jesus is like, that standard is way too easy. <laughs> this standard is so much harder. Because when you look at, so see this, when you look at someone who is not your own possession, because that's what the, they would have viewed this, but someone else that you want to be your possession, that, that's the problem. A Christ follower doesn't do this. It's on par with this concept of adultery. And again we ask, is all the men said, but isn't he speaking in hyperbole? Like, let us off the hook, please. Except Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He actually doubles down. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now for all those that desire to have a literalist reading of scripture, you might want to black out this section. <laughs> because if Jesus was speaking literally, there'd be a lot more eye patches <laughs> in the body. There'd be a lot more one-handed individuals. And we laugh. But it's true. 
Because it's so interesting when we look at these sins, we go to a sin that we don't have an issue with, and we say, Jesus is speaking literally about this. Okay, touche. What about this? Well, no, there I think he was taking some liberty to make a point. Oh, really? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Maybe is that something that you have a problem with? Well, no, that's a private issue. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not a private issue. It's a public issue. It's a body issue. So how we view other people is about the body of Christ. Whether I choose to look at someone inappropriately isn't just about me. Whether I choose to harbor anger towards a brother or sister in Christ isn't just about me. It's about the body. Now Jesus says if we're going to have issues maybe we should create some roadblocks so that we don't so easily find ourselves careening towards said behavior. The oft-quoted Dr. John Just once said, don't camp next to sin. That's a paraphrase. That's not a direct quote. Don't pitch your tent where you're going to have a problem. We've talked about this before. Hashtag top the tater. Stay out of my house. We're adding pumpkin bars. No longer welcome on Paradise Drive. No longer welcome. I don't care what time of year it is. Oh, I just struggle with this thing. Well, then why do you keep positioning yourself so close to it? <laughs> Jesus says, if, if there's going to be a challenge... Create some space. Create a roadblock or a buffer between you and that thing. Now, he also makes the point, inadvertently, lust is not just about the eye. Because somebody who is blind can still have an issue with this. So even removing the physical thing doesn't necessarily make a difference. Just like when we talk in the Old Testament about this idea of circumcision, it's like circumcision of the heart is more important than circumcision of the body. Because the instruction of Jesus isn't just about the things that we do. And I'll probably just keep saying this a hundred times over. Dallas Willard's famous quote, this is not about sin mitigation. And again, that's a paraphrase, not a direct quote. His thing is sin management. The gospel is not about sin management. The Sermon on the Mount is not about sin management. It's about a posture and an orientation of one's life towards Jesus Christ. And when we are oriented towards Christ, the further we get towards Christ the further the other things go into the distance. Let's just skip the next verses. <clears throat> Did you say why? <laughs> uh, <yeah. clears 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The ink that has been spilt. The beauty of this is Jesus gets, addresses it again in Matthew 19. So we will come back to this. So, is this hyperbole too? Great question. So glad you're here to ask. Anyone else wondering the same thing? Most of us are like, no, it's, it's right there. No one who's ever been divorced, who's a follower of Jesus Christ, is like, well, of course it's not hyperbole, or of course it's just, you know, literal. It's right there. And every married person who's never been divorced is like, nope, literal. So what do we do? Because I, I can hear the, we just see this image flashing before our eyes of, of the water slide and the banana peel. Because wh- what if, are we going to give ground here because it makes us feel better? Are we going to give ground here because that makes us feel better? The answer is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's real easy to skip over the carving out of one's eye because we look inappropriately at another person and get out the sharpening tool and the knife to carve up a person who has been divorced. Not a follower of Jesus Christ. It says right here, divorcing someone and marrying another is is committing adultery. It says it right here. Yes, I know that's exactly what it says. What is the point that Jesus is trying to make? For one thing, what he's trying to say, (laughs) he's taking what, what has been loosened up around the concept of marriage in an ancient Near Eastern context, which if we want to talk about biblical marriage, we could just start talking about polygamy, okay? Because that's also in the Bible. And so we have this interesting challenge as we, as we unpack these things, and we try to unpack them with grace. A man could divorce a woman very easily. A man could also kick a woman out of his home and not divorce her, which means she is legally bound to that male. Not to seek refuge or refuge in refuse, that's garbage. Refuge, that was a maybe a Freudian slip, I don't know if you're into Freud. Uh, refuge in another man's company because she's still married to this other person legally. And so Jesus is actually speaking directly to to individuals who have cast females out as property 
no longer to be welcomed in their home. You can't do that, he says. He says, if you choose to abandon your first spouse, at least be willing to grant them permission to be free of you. That does not mean that Jesus is saying, divorce, totally cool. God's design for marriage, we know from the very beginning. Husband and wife cleave together forever till death do us part. Did we talk about committing a murder earlier? Forever. That was God's plan. That was the whole goal. But do we not remember that Jesus is on the scene because the, the plan of God has kind of gone by the wayside? So now we're trying to cobble this thing back together and how we are going to live as people of God? So he says, at a minimum, you have to treat this person as a human being. Which again, ancient Near Eastern times, this would have been a radical thing. And he says, when you choose to end your, your marriage on any grounds except for sexual immorality, you are setting up this person for a bad thing. So again, if, the, if our... And, and you can totally disagree with me on this. I, I would actually find great delight if some people did disagree with me on this. If the interpretive model that we're look, lens that we're looking through the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular this section, is about interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ or within God's people, which is where we started, Jesus is telling men, when you choose to end your marriage, you are causing a grievous offense to this other human being who is a child of mine. Notice how that's slightly different than how we've looked at it before or maybe how we have had it framed before. Because we know that to commit adultery is a problem. We just talked about that. You know, ripping out the eye and cutting off the hand. So what is happening? Why, why are there not more words? <laughs> That's what I want. And I know we have to hold in tension the context of the gospel. True. We also have to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first century audience was all of the gospels put together. And so woe to us if we choose to take one tiny little section and make it the standard, ignoring the rest of the sections of the collection that is the gospel and also the collection that is scripture. So we are going to get another shot at this because Matthew brings it back up in chapter 19. 
if our default position is to love other people with the love of Jesus Christ, that's our goal. And everything after that is grace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is not judgment. So, divorce is such a hard thing for us to wrestle with. Because this verse has been used to trap women in abusive relationships for sometimes their whole lives. You can't leave me because Matthew 5 says only sexual immorality. Says the one-eyed man. Oh, wait. No, that wasn't literal. That was hyperbole. God is a God of love who desires his human beings to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other and flourishing. So in an abusive relationship, God is not honored. God wants us to flourish. So Jesus is not saying... There is no way out for women in a marriage when they are being abused. He's not saying that. And woe to any man who says that to you. I'm not condoning divorce. I am not saying we're just wide open, fling open the gates. What I'm saying is, we need to understand who God is and what he desires for us, and we need to have modesty and humility when we read the text. And if we want to go literal, it's going to be a different world for us. And at the same time, if we want to go to the other side of the spectrum, we are going to lose what God is trying to communicate to us. We just talked about this on Sunday night in our small group. This, this is... The Bible, God's word is not some spiritual buffet where we get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. Let's just, again, have some modesty around deciding where we anchor and get out the knives and where we pass over and say, well, but that's, yeah, okay. And that's why we need to do it together so that our brothers and sisters can say, I hear what you're saying. Let me challenge you on this. And that's a good thing. Again, on Monday at this conference, one speaker takes one position and another speaker takes another position and they're both devout followers of Jesus Christ who don't necessarily agree on everything. And these people are experts. And they can sit and they can say, yes, I don't agree with you. I love you. I don't agree with you. That's okay. That's okay.
Should our default position be inclusiveness versus exclusiveness? Well, interestingly enough, Kristen Kobes Dumay, in her talk on Monday night, went on for 45 minutes about that exact topic. I don't have 45 minutes, and I'm not her. As we talked about in Ephesians, and in many other places, Jesus Christ came to reconcile the world to himself. We are the ones who want to create barriers and boundaries to other people because it benefits us and we don't struggle with those things. So, modesty, yes. I think that we see throughout the gospel Jesus being radically inclusive in who he chooses to associate with and share his life with. And if we are to be followers of, I'm going to live like Jesus, then I need to be a lot more radically inclusive in who I allow into my space and to share my hospitality with and to offer my body to Yes, I think that, that is, that's what is happening in the gospel. All right. Did I mention how I said something? Oh, yes. How do you stay, you said, Convicted with grace without, yep, without condemning. So, we are called to be followers of Jesus Christ, not to be his deputies. Phil Vischer was talking about that today on the Holy Post. A follower of Jesus Christ is not a lieutenant for Jesus the sheriff, bringing about justice. If it, We are called to live on the cross as Jesus lived on the cross. So if, if it requires me coming off my cross to convict you, I have said, Jesus, don't worry, I got this which again puts us in the place of God, which again, I'm pretty sure, oh wait, yeah, that's in the Ten Commandments. So at some point, we decided that we were to be the convictors. I contend when we choose to devalue the role of the Holy Spirit, the three-legged stool that is the Godhead, the Trinity, we, uh, it appears to be wobbly, and then we take the place of the Holy Spirit, which is God. We are not God. When we try to be God, and my friends, my buddies and I were talking about this because he was just preaching on, on humility and, and the Philippians passage. Jesus did not grasp, strive after his position. If we are to be like Christ, we need to stop grasping after the position of God, which is 
distorted in many, many layers that we believe is condemning. If we believe God is a a God of open condemnation and we mirror that, there's two things that are going wrong in our theology. One, that that's who God is, and two, that we get to play that role. Did I mention that I told some guys that I was going to be here this morning and I crushed a young man's dreams of joining us for for basketball? Because now, every time I'm I'm going to have to say, next Tuesday, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, I swear to God that I will be there. Or maybe I just need to say, I'm sorry, I'll be there. Because Jesus says, these oaths, we think that we have to like, if our word is so devalued, meaning I tell you I'm going to do something. Dale's like, hey, could you come over and lift this heavy object? It happens to me all the time. And I say, yes, Dale, I'll come lift this heavy object tomorrow at noon then I don't show up. The next time I say, yeah, Dale, I'll do this thing for you, Dale doesn't believe me because my word has been devalued by my actions. So then we start creating all these linguistic gymnastics like we just talked about. You know, you got it back in the day, pinky swear. Or to be honest, Okay, so everything you just said was not honest, but now you've decided because the Holy Spirit or your neighbor who is functioning as the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your lack of honesty? Place my hand on the Bible, and I swear, as if now I've decided that I'm going to be truthful. And Jesus is like, no. Quit it. Followers of mine say what they mean and they mean what they say. And they live into that. Because that's who we're called to be. All right. Uh, You can go to your groups. If you need a group, let me know.